Theology. 
He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. And I wonder, do you know him? You know, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave could not hold him. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes, that's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? Welcome in. Thank you very much for joining us. This is In Time Prophecy News. I am your humble host, W. Dean Schultz. I tried doing this episode a few days ago. and had a serious problem with sound quality. So if this is coming through broken or of poor quality, then please call me and tell me. You can call the show number at 760-283-4605 at the prompt you call, it'll say if you speak with the host, press 1. If this is coming through broken or of less quality, please, by all means, call me and tell me so I can play another song and try to fix this thing again. You know, there's really no reason for this. I have state-of-the-art equipment, a strong connection, and yet, for some reason, it's it, the forces are against it. They don't want this program out there. So if this is not good quality, please call me. All right. So uh, let me say welcome to all of our regular listeners, everybody on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Spreaker Radio Network, our regular broadcasters across this country, everyone in the UK. Thank you so much. You folks are so active. I love hearing from you. Good morning to those of you in the Middle East. Uh, thank you for those in the Philippines, and welcome to everyone. Um, and thank you again for you folks on iTunes. You're also very active. Um, yeah, you folks on iTunes are just relentless. Thank you for the recent emails. Uh, we've recently made a, uh, some improvements to the website, wdeanshook.com, where we now have uh, news updates that that are uh, relevant to the end times, relevant to um, the times that we're in. Um, I'm trying to update these things daily. There are links, and there's commentary links, news links, right on the, the first page, wdeanshook.com. And there's also a form there that you can fill out um, if you want to uh, – if you forget the email address or whatever and that will come straight to my email address i i will answer each one of these thank you very much for the uh emails that i've got um it, it's always good to hear from everybody i appreciate it so very much uh, and the email is contact at wdeanshook.com that's contact at wdeanshook.com now like i tried to explain in the in the last attempt at this program. I want to clear something up about the rapture before we start the study of these seven seals. Now I know there's a there's a controversy among believers. If it's pre-trib, uh, mid-trib, post-trib, um, and, and I've been hearing all of the arguments. And I just want to go through briefly what the Bible says about it and take it from there, believe whatever you know your heart tells you to believe. But I think it's important that we understand what, what the Gospels actually say. Now, for those of you who think that there needs to be prophetic signs before this rapture, this is just going to take a minute, and then we'll start the, the seals. So this will just take a minute. Hang with me here. There's people...
people that think that there need to be certain signs before the rapture. So let's ask the question, are there, or is there a relationship between the rapture and any prophetic signs? I say there's none. Are you shocked? Well, the rapture is only an evacuation of believers before the judgment. The meeting in the heavens, not Christ's return to earth. Since his first coming to earth, his second coming will also be to earth. The rapture, then, is not a coming to earth. Christ does not return to earth for the rapture. What the rapture is, is meeting in the clouds. If you take two, it's not his return. He doesn't actually come back to earth. We go to him, he doesn't come back to earth. Take it for what it is. All right. If you, let me say this. If you take two Bibles and you place them side by side, and you open one to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, where the signs begin, and open the other one to Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, or Luke 21, and you compare the signs that are in these chapters that are, uh, to the ones that are found in Revelation, you get one conclusion. They're identical. The texts are practically the same. The church is raptured in verse four, or in, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. The believers, represented by the 20 and 4 elders in uh, 10 and 11, they're placing crowns at, at God's feet before the signs of the judgment of the tribulation hour begin in chapter 6 to 18. The signs are post-trib and pre-revelational. Post-trib and pre-revelational. In other words, they're fulfilled in the rapture and before the revelation. When Christ calls his saints to heaven and before he returns to earth, no signs need to be fulfilled prior to the rapture because all signs point to the revelation, the revealing of Christ's return to earth. So there's a period of seven years following the rapture during which every sign can be adequately fulfilled. This is, of course, the tribulation hour. We as Christians have been raptured. We have been delivered from this. Now, at this point, every believer should be praising the Lord because this is utterly fantastic. Since the signs point to Christ's return, we see believers returning with him. The logical deduction is that all signs point to our, recri- our return with Christ. Now, as it stands... All of these end-time prophecies are casting their shadows right now. They're here and casting shadows. The prophecies that take place after the believers are gone indicate that we will return with him when he returns with the saints. That's us. Okay, so there's a number of seal judgments that are contained in this chapter. Some of these are going to deserve some special emphasis, and we're going to do that as we go through this. First, I want to make it clear that God's been giving us these warnings, these very seal warnings since the very beginning. They're found in the Old Testament, they're found in the New Testament, and they're found in Revelation. He's been telling 
telling every generation for the for thousands of years that this is going to happen. This is how it's going to be. And as we go through this, I'm going to compare it like I always try to do. I always try to try to keep this all in, uh, in context with the rest of Scripture, which is really the only way we're going to get the truth is if it fits in with the rest of Scripture throughout the Bible. Now, if, if somebody's giving you some sort of interpretation that doesn't fit with anything else, then it's wrong. And, and it's just actually that simple. If they're telling you something and something in the Bible, something else in the Bible contradicts that, it's wrong. And first, in, in verse 2, there's the rider on the white horse. This coincides with Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, 3 and 5. And his disciples asked him, What shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Well, rider on the white horse is depicting the first seal judgment. It's a counterfeit. Satan always attempts to do everything that Christ does. Now, the Lord is seated on a white horse in chapter 19, verse 11. He returns with you and me to the earth. So, seven years... Seven years before Christ's return, the Antichrist also mounts a white horse. This event is identical to the signs in Matthew 24, 3. Now, this is important. You, you know, there's other, there's other comparisons like this. You'll, you'll notice that um, Christ is described as the Lion of Judah, where Satan is also described as a lion. But he seeks to devour. So even though they're both described as a lion, it doesn't mean that you can equate the two to being even close to equal. You see what I'm saying? Anything that Christ does, Satan tries to imitate. So Christ being described as the lion of Judah and Satan, Lucifer, being described as the lion that seeks to devour, even though they're both described as lions, Let's understand this. It's not the same thing. Okay, we should also note that in verse 3 and 4, here's what it says. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and powerful and was given to him to uh, sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. This is the second sign Jesus mentioned. This is where he said that there would be wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24, 6. So we see it in Revelation and we see it in Matthew. Verse 5 and 6 says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on it had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou, hurt not the oil or the wine. This is the picture of mass starvation. And it agrees with Christ's third sign in Matthew 24, 7, where we are told, and here's what it says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, 
I heard the voice of the beast say, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse. His name that sat on the horse was, was Death, and hell followed him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now the fourth seal judgment agrees with my statement that there shall be pestilence, earthquake in diverse places, destroying thousands, yea, millions. That's in Matthew 24, 7. So you see, this is not our first uh, warning of these coming disasters. Now verse 9 says that when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This is the fifth sign that Jesus gave in Matthew 24, 8 and 9. There are the beginnings of sorrow. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Again, we see a second warning. Finally, in verse 12 and 16, John tells us, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of air, the moon was become as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto earth as a fig tree catcheth the untimely figs. And she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from uh, from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. The sixth seal is the sixth sign that Jesus mentioned in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, which says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars will fall from heaven. So it's evident that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain the same signs as the book of Revelation. However, we have to realize that each sign is completely fulfilled in chapter 4, verse 1, where the church is called to heaven in the twinkling of an eye through that phrase, come up hither. Now, like we already talked about, these signs are to be filled after we're gone, already transpiring. Now, we see them before our eyes today's, in today's Headlines. Uh, we covered this on this program all the time. This has happened. All of these things starting to happen now. We are in these beginnings of sorrows. All right. So in chapter 6 through 18, we see firsthand these events that take place on the earth during the tribulation. A total of 13 chapters in Revelation are consumed with these warnings. They're consumed with telling us about oh, what's going to happen. This should be clear to everyone. You know, you can also uh, take note that the Bible graphically describes all of these even in, in Jeremiah 37, chapter 30, verse 7. 
says last, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Daniel 21 says, And at the time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as was since there was a nation even to the same time. And that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. What to say in Matthew twenty four twenty one? For then shall be great tribulation, such as such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever be. These verses tell us the fact that the tribulation will constitute Earth's bloodiest hour. This is going to be a time like no other time in human history. There will not have been anything in past centuries to equal it. Neither will there be any event in the future unleashed on this planet anything like this. This is a one-of-a-kind thing. These are going to be calamities that the world has never seen. Let's start with this first seal. And here's what it says, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard it as it were the voice of thunder, one of four beasts, saying, Come and see. At this command, John sees the one who's worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, the Lamb of God, our Lord Christ Jesus. Immediately, John hears the noise of thunder, a sign of catastrophe, pending catastrophe, because we're just starting to open these seals. We see one of the living creatures, one of these angels, saying, come and see. The words, and see, are not in the original text. Just the word, come. It's a command given to the rider of the white horse, the infamous Antichrist, because at this point, his time has arrived. This is the beginning beginning of the end. Verse 2, And I saw and beheld a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth, conquering, and to conquer. Now Satan has always tried to duplicate the word of, work of God. You know, back in the day of Moses, the magicians of Pharaoh were able to uh, accomplish the same miracle as Aaron did. This has always been Satan's ploy. He's not the creator. God is. All he can do is imitate what God does. You remember when he threw down the staff and it turned into a uh, turned into a stake. A stake, yeah. They had stake. A snake. <laughs> they didn't have stake. Or they might have, I don't know. But he threw <laughs> he threw it down and it became a snake. Well the Pharaoh's magicians came forth, they threw theirs down, they became snakes. But what happened? It, the snake that Aaron threw down out of his staff consumed the other ones. Because they were fraud, they were fake, they were less than. Proving the power of God. Alright. So this right this writer appears at the beginning. At uh, the beginning of the tribulation period. Since he's a master counterfeiter, who's he imitating? Well, the answer is found in chapter 19, verse 11 through 16, which describes Christ's return as a conclusion of the tribulation. 
So the faith begins it, and the Savior ends it. John says, and I saw heaven open. This is the second time an opening appears in heaven in Revelation 19.11. This provides an exit for Christ and his bride as they return to earth. Now, as heaven is open, John beholds a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doeth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The enemies which are in heaven followed him on the white horse, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his high a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the coming of the true Christ. Now since our Christ is God, the Antichrist also proclaims himself as God. Here's what it says in Thessalonians. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is full of God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God? Well, the Antichrist comes to power through an international peace treaty that we see in Daniel 9.29. This is why the horse's white rider has but it doesn't say anything about an arrow. The Antichrist conquers through diplomacy, the king, hence the crown. That's why we know he will come to power as a king. Now, when we talk about the one world government, it's, it's pretty easy to see that he has the bow. But they don't say anything about any arrows. doesn't mean he doesn't have them, but they don't say anything about these arrows. But... He does have a crown. Why does he have a crown? Because he comes as a king. He's going to conquer through diplomacy. That's how he gets this peace treaty that's described in Daniel 9.27. In fact, when he takes control over the nations by this one world government, power is given to him over uh, all kindreds, tongues, and nations in Revelation 13.7. This Antichrist is followed by three additional writers of judgment. Together, these four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to bring heartache, death, and destruction on the globe such as never been experienced in history. This Antichrist is called the beast because of his character. You know, chapter 13, verse 2 and 3. Because he ascends out of the abyss, and because he receives his power, his throne, and his authority from Satan, in chapter 13, verse 2, the Antichrist's uh, ascension to world leadership is the signal that unleashes these remaining 20 judgments. I say 20 because there's more judgments than just these seven seals. We're not getting into those today, but they're there, and they are still to come. Now, the peace that was made by the first writer is broken by the one who mounts the red horse. This, of course, is in harmony with the first riders of the Antichrist program in Daniel 9.27. 
that outlines this peace package as well as its failure. Here's what it says. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of that week shall call, cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. When peace is confirmed, the Jews will feel at ease. They'll feel at ease to conduct sacrifices without fear of war. However, in the midst of that week, or literally in the middle, the contract is broken. The term uh, is the word that's used, and its original meaning means seven years. All right, let's look at this second seal. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat to take peace on the earth. And they that shall kill one another, and there shall be given unto him a great sword. Now one of these nations that comes against in this latter days is Russia. And it's interesting that he's on a red horse because the rider on this red horse takes peace from the earth. Now, I'm going to ask a question here. Since Russia's color is red, they're called Red Russia. Is this Russia the cloud that comes over the nation in the final days from the north? Because they are directly north of Israel. Ezekiel 38.2, the term Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and Rosh are mentioned in connection with this march in the Middle East in, the, in this final battle. Now, before Armageddon, listen to the message God gave Ezekiel. I'm talking about compelling. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach, Tubal, and prophesy against him. One of these names, actually all of these names, can be located inside present-day Russia. Historically, uh, uh, let's see, I don't know if I can pronounce this right or not. The name Tobolsk was the eastern capital of Russia. In ancient days, this was called Tubal. The same Tubal that's mentioned in these verses. It's southwest of Siberia, uh, Siberia on, a, on a modern map. Now the place, uh, this is the same place, I don't know if you remember this or not, where that U-2 pilot, Gary Powers, was gunned down years ago. I don't know if you remember that or not. Meshach has morphed itself into Moscow. The, the historical names for Moscow began with Meshach and then Meshach, then Meshai, then Miskadi, then Miskavi, and now Moscow. Rosh is Russia itself. And the name has just morphed over the all of this time. This is also called this great bear. Well, Russia calls itself the bear. And there's just too much compelling evidence pointing to Russia to say that it's not for me. You can decide for yourself whether it is or not. But it's pretty compelling evidence that these names are the same and it, it's described as a great bear and 
it describes itself as a great barrier. It, it's, you know, this is a future event, so we don't know exactly 100% if that's what it's going to be, but I'm telling you, it all points to it. So it invades Israel from the north. And here's, here's what that says in Ezekiel. And thou shalt come up from thy place of north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company with a mighty army. Thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. I shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me. For I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, Gog, G-O-G, before their eyes. That's in Ezekiel 38, 15, and 16. Well, Russia is directly north of Israel. It moves against her in these latter days in Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, this attack centers around the Holy Land, Israel. In fact, the name Israel is used 18 times to identify the nation that's, that's being invaded in Ezekiel. Chapter 38 and 39 attests this inspiration of the Bible, for there was no nation in modern history called Israel until 1948. In modern history, since 1948. Now, we, we know it used to be called Israel. It was called Israel when it was given to uh, the descendants of Abraham in the very beginning. But since then, in modern times, there has been no Israel. And since it mentions Israel 18 times, there had to be an Israel for this to come to pass. <clears throat> so while it's not pivotal, uh, per se, standalone pivotal that Israel be reestablished as a nation, it was it was a must for these end time prophecies to come to pass. That's why it's so important that this this is a key part of these end time prophecies that Israel had become a nation in 1948, and when we see that. And we see these other end-time prophecies come to pass almost on a daily basis. I mean, you just cannot deny the times that we're in. So this war of the future undoubtedly occurs close to the tribulation hour because the facts presented in the book of Revelation are harmonious with Ezekiel's prophecy. In fact, the eight to nine chapters contain unusual predictions uh, about the woes of the tribulation hour that point to this Middle East war in chapter 8, verse 7. It mentions the burning of one-third of the earth as the first angel sounded. And here's what it says. The first angel sounded and followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And there were cast upon the earth a third part of the tree was burned up. All green grass was burned up. In fact, Revelation 19 depicts the extinction of one-third of the world's inhabitants. Now remember, I did a program on these one-thirds. Remember, it describes, uh, not during the field, but it describes in Revelation that the beast with a swipe of his tail will bring down a third of the stars. Now we know, um, as some of you already know, we've talked about it in some emails, Sometimes, uh, Lucifer has been described as the morning star. He's been described as a great star, a great star, not the great star. We know that 
that our Christ, Jesus, is, is the bright morning star. However, since Satan is his uh, greatest creation, then he is also given the name as a great star. But his light is a created light. He only has the light that God has given him. In the beginning, before his fall, he was given light. He is, he is God's greatest angel that he had created. He was a superior cherubim. And when he swipes his tail and brings down a third of the stars, also the third of the angels that he took with him when he was thrown from heaven, it makes sense that it would destroy a third of the population because his population stands right now. And I'm not saying it is it. I'm just saying there's a comparison here. It stands a third of the population of the earth right now are Christians. We're also told that he will be given power to overcome the saints. I mean, all of these things just uh, this not be coincidence. All right, so here's what it says. For by... There was a third part of the men killed by fire and by smoke and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. <clears throat> I got a little bit off track here, so let me go through this again so that we can keep our line of thinking going here. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and there was cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And by there was a third part of men killed by fire and by smoke and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. So if he's talking about stars, then why does it say their mouths? They're being plural, not singular. And how does star have a mouth? That's, that's just another confirmation that these are these fallen angels that Satan took with him when he was, when his butt was booted out of heaven. So, let's try this third seal. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou not hurt the oil or the wine. This is what we talked about earlier. The famine, the inflation, which usually follows war. The rider on this black horse produces three tragic sorrows on the earth. Ezekiel prophesied this hour. Here's what he said. And the meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time thou shalt eat it. Thou shalt drink also water by measure. Behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care. Why are they doing this? Now, let's see exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, Thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight. It's going to be portioned out. By weight. 
It says 20 shekels a day. Well, a shekel in that time was huge amount of money. From time to time thou shalt eat it. doesn't say every day. From time to time. Thou shalt drink also water by measure. That's rationing water. Behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with care. They're going to get a certain amount of it, and they're going to be careful to portion it out to make it last. Now, both Ezekiel chapter 4, 10, 11, and 16, and Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26 says, You shall eat and not be satisfied. You see it saying the same thing in Ezekiel that it says in Matthew, that it says in Revelation. These warnings are given to us all through the generations. Listen to this. In these ones, Ezekiel 4, 10, 11, and 16, Leviticus 26, 26 says, Ye shall eat and not be satisfied. Why will they not be satisfied? Because they're, they're eating their food and drinking their water by weight and with care. It's rationed. It's scarce. It costs a lot of money to eat. This is pictured by the pair of balances that the angel in Revelation 6 also cries. A measure of wheat for a penny. Three measures of barley for a penny. Now in Bible times, laborers received a denarius or a penny as an entire day's wages. How do we know that? Because that's what it says in Matthew 20. So I'm not I'm not speculating. I'm going by what Matthew 20 says, that that was a he was a day's wages. Now a measure would be 16 of our American ounces. So think of this: an entire day's wages for a loaf of bread. So it's no wonder that Moses said, "Ye shall eat and not be satisfied." A man will have to spend everything he has just for the necessities of life. Well, what about this oil and wine? These items were luxuries in Bible times. We find that there are those who still possess them during the tribulation hour. However, the general picture of hunger is going to stock the entire world. Well, why? Because inflation, the, the economic problems, we're having worldwide economic problems right now, the beginnings of these very same sorrows. And it becomes so bad during the tribulation that precious metals actually become worthless. So if you're saving gold and silver and think it's going to do you some good that when these times hit, you better think twice. Because hoarding diamonds and gold and silver are not going to cut it. During this period of time, inflation is going to skyrocket. The Antichrist, uh, Mark of the Beast, the 666, which we've covered many times. Now understand this. Before I go on, that when it comes to this mark of the beast, and I say this all of the time, most of you have already heard it, I'm going to say it again. It says, for he who has the number, or the name, or the number of his name. It doesn't say that it has. it's only the 666. It could be the 666. It could be his name. Or it could be the number of his name, and then it tells you to how to calculate that number which is 666. So 
don't think that because something doesn't say 666 that you're not taking the mark of the beast. Anything that prevents you from buying or selling or doing any kind of business, holding a job, uh, renewing the tags on your car, if you can't do anything without it, that's the mark of the beast. So let's make sure that we're clear on that. So this will replace gold and silver and paper money. And it's because of this situation they shall cast their silvers, according to Ezekiel here, it's what it says, they will cast their silver into the streets. Their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. It's Ezekiel 7.19. Because if you don't have the mark, all of that stuff is worthless. You can't do anything with it. You might as well throw it in the streets. It's worthless. James adds in on chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. The gold and silver is cankered. The rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. Ye have heaped treasures together for the last days. Earthly treasures. Then as now, this brings nothing but sorrows and tears and heartache and trouble in these last days. You'd better do what you can for the Lord while you can. Why leave it behind in the, in the tribulation hour when it becomes of no value at all? Every single Christian should serve God with material blessings, winning souls to Christ. This is what our goal is. You know, Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures, lay up, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doeth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. Matthew 6. So you can either let go or you can give it to God and store it up on the other side. Because let's face it, that's where you're going to spend eternity. Our lives here on earth are just a whisper. Once it's gone, then you enter into eternity. And, you know, I, I heard an, an, an analogy once that I think was a good analogy about how long eternity is. That if you took a silk handkerchief that could never wear out and you brushed it across the top of the tallest mountain in the world and you did that continuously until that mountain was wore down to sea level, that would be the first second of eternity. How long is your life here on earth? When he comes back to give this earth facelift, which is, and this earth is not the earth that, that was intended for us. This is not our home. It's, it's the renewed, remodeled, facelift earth where he puts it back to its uh, original intent that's going to be our home. Not what we're in. Our job here is to not to be as happy in, in life as possible. It's to prepare the rest the unbelievers, the rest of the world, to be in the, the earth that's intended for us. It is our job as Christians when we go home to make sure that we take virtually 
everybody we can so that they can enjoy the same blessings that you and I are going to enjoy. That's how important this is. Not to collect as many toys as you can. or to, uh, I mean, we need to understand this. So let's move on to this fourth seal. This is the rider on the pale horse. And before we start this rider on the pale horse, since we're just about at the top of the hour, I want to take a short break here. And while we take this break, consider the first three seals that we talked about. And as we, because I don't want to, this is a lot of information. I don't want to cram this all out there all at once without time to think about what we've talked about. So let me take just a short break here so that everyone can digest what we've talked about before we start this fourth seal. And it's important that that we do this. So um, let me take this short break. I'll be back in uh, just a couple minutes and we'll start the fourth seal. Thank you. 
This is the music of Georgia Red. Appreciate uh, John allowing me to play his music on the show. Appreciate it so much. You can find his music on Amazon.com. Uh, I would encourage you to um, go get his music. It's good stuff. All right. Are we ready to uh, start this fourth seal? All right, let's do it. I'm ready if you are. All right. The fourth seal. This is a pale horse. This is one who agitates the conditions that were already started by the rider on the black horse. The third seal, which unleashes hunger and on the earth, but the fourth seal produces mass starvation. And here what here's what it says in verse seven. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast saying Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Eth. And hell followed with him, and power was given unto him over a fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. This is the one we talked about at the beginning of the program. This horse is described as pale. However, the Greek word for this is chloros. That's the same word where we get uh, chlorine gas. In other parts of the New Testament, we find the word chloros is translated as green. That's important. That's in Mark uh, 6 and Revelation 9. The fourth writer that we're talking about here is the deadliest. This is why his name is death and why hell follows with him. He destroys the body, then he swallows up the souls and the spirits of those he kills with the sword of hunger and the beasts of the earth. We don't know exactly what that's going to be. However, you know, we have things like AIDS, uh, the green monkey virus. Um, You know, I think something else is uh, important is the colors of Islam are green. Their goal is to kill as many uh, infidels as possible. Uh, We're not going to go into everything that there is about Islam at the moment, but we've gone through it before. More than seven, or more than one billion, seven hundred and fifty million people, according to uh, today's uh, approximate population. So this could easily happen. You know, especially since we have uh, atomic or hydrogen neutron bombs. I mean, it could easily happen today where, and very quickly, where in the past we didn't really have the option to kill that many people at once. You know, when we talk about wars and rumors of wars, and, um, I've done that <clears throat> that program in the past where it's an unprecedented power that we have to kill today over any other time in history. Take a look at this fifth seal. This is the opening of the fifth seal. This brings the cries of the martyrs. Jesus spoke of this same thing in Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. 
Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. So, if you read chapter 4 again, you're going to discover this reference to the tribulation saints is composed of the elect Israelites and the Gentiles who converted, or who are converted, by the 144,000 Jews. Now, I know there's some controversy with some of you about who these 44,000 are. Well, these persecuted saints and martyrs are not part of the church, not not the body of Christ and the bride of the Savior that's already um, rushed out in chapter 4, verse 1. Come up hither. Verse 9 says, When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony for which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, do thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants, also their brethren, that they should be killed as they were uh, to be fulfilled. Now these martyred saints are seen under the altar. In the Old Testament... The altar always refers to the place where blood had been sacrificed. Souls are going to be saved during the tribulation hour the same way that souls are saved today. The precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now because the believers of the tribulation hour proclaims Christ crucified, they lose their lives. At this point, every 21st century believer should ask himself the question, would there be enough evidence Convict me as a Christian during this period of time if if I'm end up being there. That's going to determine whether or not you're actually a Christian or not. However, in this age of grace, we also see that there will be losers if we attempt to uh, be secret disciples, never testifying of our faith. Because, you know, Jesus said, Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him also I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So if it comes to the point at between now and his return that your life is threatened, for your testimony and your relationship with the true God, the Christ, Jesus, will you deny him? Now, it's one thing for for us to sit around and say, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, when the situation is 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 real and it's at hand, if you're bound and, and say the Muslims are telling you, you either... You either deny Christ or we're going to cut your head off while you're alive. What would you do? When the threat is real and you're at that point, is your conviction, is your relationship strong enough to actually say, I will not deny the one true God and let them whack your head off or saw it off or whatever they're going to do? a critical question. I, I, I hope everybody will think about that. 
All right, so these slain martyrs are crying. They're not in an unconscious state. So this doctrine of soul sleep is not taught in the Bible. You know, there's some denominations that teach that all believers sleep until the resurrection. Not so. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The soul sleep idea can never find a time when they're absent from their bodies. If the soul remains in a state of sleep in the body until Christ's return, then they're never separated. The Bible teaches that they're separated. The body is asleep in one place, in the grave, whereas the soul is alive in another place, either heaven and hell, depending on who you're going to serve. For the Christian, to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, to die is gain. It's also the reason that when Christians return in, in the at the rapture, he brings those who are asleep, the dead, with him. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also, which sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him? In First Thessalonians. Now, how can the Lord bring the dead with him and still come after the dead in First Thessalonians 4.16? Some of you are saying that. You're saying there's a contradiction there. Well, it's simple. It's because the dead are in two places. Souls and spirits are with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But their bodies are in the grave. Hence, Christ brings the dead, the souls and the spirits, already in his presence with him. So they can come together with their bodies. You know, we're going to get a new resurrected body, a glorified body, the same kind of body, we're told, that Jesus had after his resurrection. That's why the dead in Christ rise first. All of this is uh, is pictured in the rapture. Is it then the spirits of the martyred tribulation saints cry? They also wear white robes. Are these lifeless spirits who cannot cry or wear white robes? Well, the spirit, <clears throat> the spirit being has a temporary covering, and here's the proof. For we know that in our earthly houses of this tabernacle were dissolved, that is dead. We have a building of God, a house that's made with hands, eternal in the heavens, in Second Corinthians. We may not understand everything about the spirit world, but one thing is certain. Being in spirit form does not mean unconscious. Spirits move, they walk, they cry, they even wear robes. In the Bible, God says so. Well, demons are also spirits. They spoke on a lot of occasions in, in the Gospels. Why? Because spirits live. So let's, let's put away with this doctrine of soul sleep. In any dispensation. Our loved ones who are who are uh, born again Christians, who have this real relationship with Christ, they're in heaven. Their bodies may be in the grave, but they're not there. 
Now, since we've learned that it's possible for the dead to cry because spirits live, they never cease to exist. So whether you go to heaven or hell, it's eternal. And remember, there's no second chance. Once you leave their body, once that separation happens, the door closes. That doesn't have anything to do with the ones that are saved during the tribulation hour. They're still together with body and, and spirit together. Once they're separated, the door closes. There is no second chance. So what else do they say here? They're also crying for vengeance. Well, why? Stephen was on grace. He cried loud. He was stoned to death. He said, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge in Acts 7.60. But that's a different dispensation. The fulfillment of the hour that's mentioned uh, by David when he spoke of the actions of Jehovah, saying that, that he maketh inquisition for blood in Psalms uh, chapter 9. This is a group of saints who knew the prophecy was being fulfilled and wondered how much longer their loved ones are still going to suffer. Well, the Lord speaks to them about having a little more patience. There'll be one more wave of persecution that comes in chapter 3, verse 4, before this thousand-year reign starts. So let's look at the sixth seal here. I held when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, what we just see here, verse 12, we see a great earthquake. Now, there's four quakes in the birth, uh, book of Revelation. The ones mentioned here, plus three others in Revelation chapter 8, chapter 11, um, and chapter 16. Now, it's interesting to make note of the judgment of the first four seals under the jurisdiction of the Antichrist. Now, the opening of the sixth seal, however, begins the administration of the supernatural judgment from heaven. You cannot concisely interpret these as a figure. The judgments occur in this part of the scripture are to be taken literally. And why not? Do you know that earthquakes have accompanied the judgment of God throughout history? Mount Sinai quaked when God described... Um, as descending on it in fire. So in Exodus, and Mount Sinai was altogether as a smoke, because the Lord descendeth upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Rocks were smashed, 
They were smashed to smithereens through earthquakes in Elijah's day. Here's what it says. For behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains. That means tear. Rent the mountains and take in pieces the rocks before the Lord in First Kings. There's all great earthquakes when Christ died at Calvary. Here's what it says. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twine from top to bottom. The earth did quake, the rocks did rent, the graves were open, and many bodies of saints which slept arose. Matthew 27. If these quakes were were real, why wouldn't the the scene that we're talking about be literal? It's exactly what Jesus predicted in the tribulation. He, he said, and there shall be given signs in the sun and in the the moon and in the stars and upon the earth the stress of nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing from fear and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, the power of the heavens shall be shaken. Luke 21. This is a time when earthquakes and convulsions on the whole earth are so great that the stars of heaven fall Figs being shaken out of a fig tree prematurely. Strong winds, maybe tornadoes or earthquakes, are going to wreak havoc. These devastating quakes cause mountains and islands to move their foundations. No wonder a third or a half of the population dies through these catastrophes. These scenes are so terrifying. The kings, great men, rich men, chief captains, mighty men, bondmen, all free men hide themselves in dens and mountains for safety. Remember what I said, men's hearts failing from fear and looking after those which are coming on the earth in Luke 21. Uh, I, think, I think it's important to keep these things in context and know that these are warnings we've been seeing all along. Now, what about these 144,000 Israelites? You know, the seventh seal is discussed in chapter 8 of Revelation. However, before we get there, we need to understand, uh, to keep these things in context, we need to understand this 144,000. And chapter 7, is, uh, let's see, what's a good way to put this? Uh, it, it's, his, it's God's dealings with two groups. Verse 1 through 8. 144,000 Israelites. Verse 9 through 17. It talks about the uh, multitude of Gentiles. Now, this chapter also showed God as compassionate and merciful and loving. You know, for God is love in First John. In fact, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? So, if in mankind's wickedness and rebellion, and during the middle of this, for the wages uh, of, of this judgment, it says, for the wages of sin are death in Romans 6.23, and they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Well, these judgments already described are unleashed because of the hardness of men's hearts. They rebelled. They continue to rebel. 
However, God is so great at this, at this point between 7 and 8, he's given us a little time out here. He still loves the human race so much that, that he's going to give everyone a chance. So let's talk about these 144,000 Israelites. In chapter 7 of verse 1, it says, After these things I, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the winds should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, the fact that the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth does not mean that the earth is square. God knows the world he made is round, And we know that because it says so Isaiah. And this is really interesting here. In Isaiah, he sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. Now, remember back in the times and, and uh, when... Men actually thought that the earth was flat. And these are men that claim to be godly men and know the scriptures. And yet, even when God tells them that it's round, they believed it was flat. This is, this is, uh, this is an Obama's sarcasm when he says that he does, when it comes to global warming, that he doesn't have time for a meeting of the society, of the flat earth society. Don't let me get off track here. So this statement was in the Bible when Christopher Columbus was making a fool of himself by claiming, contrary to public opinion, that the world was round. The God who made this earth sits on the circle, not a square. Therefore, the term, the four corners of the earth, is but a Bible expression that depicts north, south, east, and west, the four points of the compass. Now, these four angels... Standing in four positions, administering judgment, are commanded to relent. So there might be time of revival. Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, Four angels to whom was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now the wicked are going to get their seal. That's the mark of the beast. But, and we see that in uh, chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. Genuine believers, those of us who are really have a relationship with Christ, are going to receive our seal from the angel of God at this point. And here's verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 in all the tribes of children of Israel. Now, remember, remember I'm going to say this again. Remember this verse. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, of the tribes of Judah. And it, it goes on up the tribe to the next few verses. From the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. 
of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Nephilim were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Manasseh was sealed 12,000. The tribe of Simon and Levi and um, Ashlar and Zebulon and all the 12 tribes of Israel are the ones that were sealed to encompass this 144,000. This group of the 144,000 cannot be the church, <clears throat> church because the church is already in heaven. In uh, chapter 4, verse 1, when we are already raptured, these are from the tribes of Israel that are already on the earth, the 144,000 that are going to preach the word of God, and these are going to preach it to the people who are going to be saved during this tribulation hour. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists say that the 144,000 are, are uh, according to their theological writings, are not the Jews. But not what the Bible says. The Seventh-day Adventists say the 144,000 are not Englishmen or American or advocates of the British. Uh, they make the Israelites forerunner of the Anglo-Saxons. So, what can that be? If somebody tells you anywhere along the line that these 144,000 are not Jews, just refer back to this. This is Revelation chapter 7, verse 4 through 8, where it says exactly who those 144,000 are. So you can believe the interpretation of man, or you can believe the word of God and take it for exactly what it says when it clearly, without interpretation, said exactly who these 144,000 are. Now, don't call somebody a liar. Just tell them the truth, and they can either accept it or not. It's right there in the word of God. All right. So... Don't go by what the uh, Seventh-day Adventists or uh, any of these other people say. All of this stuff is foolishness. All It's just foolishness. Okay. So we know that apparently the Jews are, are not really, most of them are not really certain of their, their heritage, the, their tribal heritage. They're not sure which, uh, uh, which one of these tribes are from. <clears throat> However, God, in the end, is going to untangle the whole thing. Actually, no one totally knows what his stock is. You know, and that's because of migration. Most people are, you know, most are a hodgepodge of different uh, nationalities. In fact, you might be embarrassed to discover your true roots. You might learn that you're a descendant of Attila the Hun or um, something like that. You know, you might find uh, their relatives uh, who were hung or evolutionists or, you know, some of you evolutionists, you know, your your ancestors, according to your belief, might have been, you know, hung by their tail. <laughs> if you're an evolutionist, you know, your your ancestors may have, Swam in the sea, and uh, yeah, these hundred and forty-four thousand. These are evangelists 
that are anointed by the Spirit. And it says so in Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. It describes the situation of these preachers who proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what it says. And it shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and upon the servants and upon the handmaids of those will I pour out my spirit. So let's take a, a, a little pause here, because there's a, there's a lot of confusion about the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in the tribulation. And this is a result of some some faulty understanding or interpretations of Second Thessalonians two chapter seven. Here's what it says: For the mystery of iniquity doeth already work; only he who now leadeth will let, until he be taken out of the way. Well, the term leadeth in the old English word for hinders. So the picture that's being painted here is. Rise of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. And Second Thessalonians two and six says this You know that withholdeth the Antichrist uh, might be delivered in his time. Then verse seven makes it clear that the hinderer, the Holy Spirit, continues to hinder the Antichrist until he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. Now, here's another reason why millions believe in the pre-trip rapture. Well, why? The hinderer lives in the hearts of his people. If any man, here's what Romans says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of this. Also, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, that the spirit of God dwelleth in you, because the truth, God's spirit, cannot be taken unless... Those um, who who live, or in whom he lives, is taken. We have to be out of the way. So, let's prove this idea. The Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are all attributes of one God. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Therefore, the Holy Spirit cannot be removed from the earth because he, as God, is in all places constantly. Now, David says in Psalm 139, Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. So, since the Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time, only his restraining influence over sin is removed during the tribulation hour. You see what I'm saying? Presently, Christians are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, in Matthew 5.13. So the evacuation of Christians in whose hearts the Holy Spirit live is the only way the restraining influence of sin is removed. Now, ridding the world of the salt and the light, Christians are God's preservative forces as well as dispellers of darkness. 
So imagine what happens when the Spirit's restraining influence, which is us, the church, is removed via the rapture before the tribulation starts. Quite literally, what's going to happen? All hell's going to break loose. Still, even during this time, the continuing personal presence um, on earth produces one of the greatest revivals in earth's history through this 144,000. Now, this message of the 144,000 centers on the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the emphasis of the Old Testament preachers to give, here's what it says in Acts, to give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall remain or shall receive remission of sins. Pretty simple. So in addition to preaching these messages of Christ, these 144,000 are going to proclaim the advent of the king. Here's what it says in Matthew. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. This is not the, the message of his first coming, or the rapture, but the revelation of Christ as king, as seen in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. So in order to get a picture of the complete message that, that they're proclaiming, you have to study the life of John the Baptist. John's message was repentance. He said, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 24 says, the blood again, he hath, behold the Lamb of God that take away the sinners of the world. This message of repentance and the blood was to prepare the hearts of the people for this third part of this message. That's the coming of our king. Okay, at this time, worldwide revival from this 144,000 is going to start. And let's, let's back that up with scripture. What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence they come. And I said to him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So what about these multitudes of Gentiles? I'm, I know that's a question for, for a lot of people, this multitude of Gentiles. So let's look at the remaining verses of chapter 7 to explain that. Verse 9 says, After this I beheld, lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palms in their hand. John says, after this, after what? 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are sealed by the Spirit of God. God's message is always to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. That's why Romans 1.16 declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. 
Now, since the Jews have heard, John sees this great tribulation standing before the throne, which no man could count, from every race and nationality. Their white robes prove they have trusted in the message of the blood of Jesus Christ. The waving of the palms that it mentions is their hands that signifies victory. They've overcome the world, the flesh, the devil. They're having a little party. They're joyous because they've survived the first six seal judgments. Pretend says they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and upon the Lamb. The multitude recognizes the source of their salvation. At this point, they're having a little party. They can't be kept quiet. Who can be silent when the grace of God has done its mighty work and you find yourself welcomed into heaven? Verse 11. And the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. <clears throat> Verse 12. They were saying, Amen, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. What a glorious time this is going to be. They fall on their faces. They worship. They praise. Their sevenfold praises are submission to God. And it centers around these seven things that I just mentioned. And that's a blessing. Glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might forever and ever. No wonder they're saying amen. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto him, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence come they? Well, what's the answer? Verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, they are them which came out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is another proof that the church is in heaven, not on earth. Well, why? Because John does not recognize the group. He knows the raptured church in heaven. In the, the church had been raptured in chapter 4, verse 1. But not the ones in this text. These are the tribulation saints who have washed their robes and made their white made them white in the blood of the lamb because god here once again these are they which came out of the great tribulation and this explains why he recognized the church in heaven but he's in a fog talking about these people they're new brothers and sisters in christ they're unknown to john They've been saved in a different period of time. A time when the when the church is already in heaven. The church was not on earth to to know or recognize them. Each group that's saved during this different dispensations of time have different duties to perform. Alright, the church is the bride. It enjoys this one thousand year honeymoon in chapter twenty. They reign as rulers and kings and priests. And we see that in First Peter and in Revelation 1. These 144,000, they serve as bodyguards of the Lamb and His bride in chapter 
14, verse 4. I'm not saying that. That's where it comes from. These Gentiles that are saved during the tribulation will be temple servants waiting on Christ and his bride to serve in this, in this temple that's described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, which is set up immediately after Russia uh, under the name of, like we talked about, Gog and Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and Rosh is destroyed in Ezekiel 39. So verse 15. Therefore, are they that before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the sh throne shall dwell among them. There's the proof. But because God's dwelling among them, among them then they're not under the sign of the dictator. They're not in the hour anymore. All right, well, let's go to verse 16. It says, they shall hunger no more. Because remember, they were eating and drinking by measure and by weight. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. This refers to the effects of the sun during the tribulation hour. The fourth angel poured out his vial on the earth, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. Chapter 16. In addition, you know, the word heat refers to fires, persecution that's described in 1 Peter. Verse 17. And the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all of the tears from their eyes. All right, let's take a short break, think about that, and then we're going to go into this uh, seventh seal that begins chapter eight. This is probably the most powerful one. So uh, let's think about who you're going to serve before we get to the finality of this. And I'll be back in just a couple minutes. Think about this, and then we're going to start this final chapter.
Better make sure. You better make sure. You better make sure that your relationship is real, that you are who and what you say you are in Christ. There's a lot more to it than than the the, the false teachings that you're gonna find out there today. Alright, let's start chapter eight. This is the seventh seal. And it says Verse 1, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven about the space of a half hour. And I'm not going to tell the joke, but there's no wind in heaven because there was silence for a half hour. So I'm going to spare you from that from that joke. Verse 2, <laughs> verse 2, and I saw the seventh angel which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. This is the beginning of the trumpet judgments. These are prophesied by Enoch, as as it was recorded in the book of Jude, verse 14 and 15. And these were anticipated by the, by the psalmist as well. That's why Psalm 96, 13 says, He cometh to judge the earth, shall judge the world with righteousness and the people of his truth. Also, Paul also confirmed these judgments in Acts 17, 31. He said 
he mentioned a time when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. <clears throat> now, before the first trumpet sounds, the fourth is is a, a blast in verse seven. This is where there's a, a prayer meeting in the next three verses. Now, listen to this. And another angel came forth and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with prayer that all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Let's go on to the verse 4. And the smoke of the incense which came with prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now here's where these prayers are answered. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now with contrast from uh, the silence of verse 1, now everything... Every noise imaginable is heard and as this judgment is prepared. Now, verse 6 says this, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first trumpet. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they cast them upon the earth. And the third part of the earth was burned up, and green grass was burned up. So there's no difficulty in understanding this verse literally. The same kind of judgment occurs in Exodus 9, 22 and 23. <clears throat> Excuse me, and here's what it says. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thy hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire among the upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And there was hail and fire mixed and mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. It happened then, and it happens again. The second trumpet, and the second angel sounded, and there was given a great mountain burning with fire and cast into the sea and the third part of the earth be or the sea became blood now we don't know if that's going to be a, a meteor or what it's going to be but notice the phrase as it were a mountain this again is this is a symbolic description now we can always take every word of the bible literally unless God tells us to take it figuratively. This passage is an example of a figurative uh, representation here. This is going to be something gigantic or something like a mountain that's cast into the sea. It causes the third part of the sea to become blood. There was a similar occurrence in Moses' day. Most of you already know this, but let's go through it anyway. And the Lord spake unto Moses, say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, stretch thy rod uh, on the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, upon all of their pools of water, that they may become blood. 
and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels and the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and the waters that were in the rivers turned to blood, and the fish that were in the rivers died. That's in Exodus 7. So we already know that this can be done. He's done it before. Verse 9, And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. So God's second trumpet blast is horrendous. When one third of the creatures in the sea die, third part of the ships are destroyed. Now only God knows what kind of plagues are going to result from, say, a nuclear war, or if 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 this happens in the sea. I mean, what if somebody fires uh, a nuclear missile at another country? Say somebody like North Korea who can't seem to light off a bottle rocket successfully. What if they fire something, it lands in the sea, and there's a nuclear explosion in the sea? Think about that. This third trump, verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, bringing as were a lamp that fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters. Now, this goes back to the thirds, but this is different because it says, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, bringing, as it were, a lamp. So this is different. This is not the, the great star that we were talking about before. Now, as I mentioned before, we have to wait for this to come about because if you have a great star in our terms today, the earth could not withstand a hit from a great star. Even if it came close by, it would probably push us into the sun. <clears throat> so this has got to be a <clears throat> meteor or something along those lines. Because, And I say that because it, it says, now notice this, and the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. Well, when you see falling stars or you see meteors in the sky, they're burning as a lamp. He's telling us right then, the same thing that scientists think they discovered, that when a meteor enters our atmosphere, that it burns up, and you see it streak across the sky in all kinds of different colors. It might be white or green, uh, green being the copper in it that's burning. But because it says it was burning as it were a lamp, then it's important to pay attention to this, that it's not the same star that we were talking about before, because it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the water. Now, verse 11, and the same, the, the name of the star is called Wormwood. A third part of the waters became Wormwood, and men died of the waters because they were made bitter. I covered this in a past program. I may play that program again because I think it was important to understand uh this subject in a little more depth. We don't have time to go into it today. However, it's it's very, very, very important. Um, I may play it again, or you can go back in the archives. I have all of the shows archived on the Blog Talk Radio Network. You can always come and log into the Blog Talk Radio Network and search my name, uh, 
W. Dean Shook, it will come up, and you can go back in the past and listen to that program. It's very important, and I may play it again. So let's move on. The fourth trumpet, verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. So as a third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. The fourth judgment has to do with the earth's luminaries, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars. And we have we have to take note with interest that on the fourth day of creation, God said, let there be light in the firmament of the heavens in Genesis. Now on the last of the fourth trumpets, one-third of the light produced by those bodies are going to be extinguished. This too also happened in Moses' day as proof that this is going to happen again. And here's what it said. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out the hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from the place for three days. That's Exodus 10. It happened once. It's going to happen again. However, the worst is yet to come. An angel flying through the midst of heaven cries, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, this correlates with Daniel chapter 9, where the seven, in the 17th week. The first three and a half years of the tribulation are not nearly as severe as the final three and a half years. In Matthew 24, 8, the Lord describes the first half of this time period as the beginning of sorrows. However, he refers to the final three and a half years as the great tribulation. And you see that in Matthew 24, 21. That's not, that's not an interpretation. That's where it comes from. So this tribulation hour that, that's approaching very fast comes more severe and with a greater loss of life. This is especially noticed as one of the observers of the two verses uh, in the first four trumpets. Now, we're, we're just about out of time, and I can't start in the first trumpet because we'd never get through it because I'm just about out of time. But chapter 9 contains this portion of scripture that's 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 covering the trumpet judgments uh, 5 and 6 which we may do uh, the trumpet judgments separate from the seal judgments even though I know I've started right up to the fourth judgment uh, trumpet but I wanted to do that show the 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 connectivity um of why we can take this um, as being the truth, because it's from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and again in Revelation. This is 
is something we have to pay close attention to because we've been warned through this whole time for this whole thing. Now, let me also mention, <clears throat> before we actually run out of time, that uh, we have a new feature on the webpage, wdeanshook.com, with those uh, news links that you're not going to hear on the Alphabet Networks that are uh, have to do with the end times, things that point to most of the things that we've been covering on this show for the last two years. Um, there's also uh, links for commentary, uh, not necessarily my commentary, even though my commentaries may be mixed in there, but it's commentaries from other sources too. Um, and it's well worth going back every single day uh, because there's new links, new new news links and commentary links every day. Um, also, uh, I want to make sure that uh, I haven't played any commercials during this program. Our sponsors, which are the lifeblood of this program, you know, we don't take donations. Uh, uh, we don't do any of that stuff. This program is sponsored by our sponsors um, who are on the, the um, uh, bottom part of the page. Please um, visit our sponsors. Help support this program. And let me say thank you to all of you folks on the Griffiths Broadcasting Network. Uh, Pastor Rob is so gracious to um, air this program on his network. Uh, we appreciate that so much. Thank you, Pastor Rob. It's uh, M-O-I-A-M dot org. Um, and he is live on 365, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, he does a great job. By all means, please go visit him. Uh, in the meantime, I'll see you on our next program. Thank you so very much. Um, Here's a little spot for uh, Pastor Rob. Uh, this is for you, Rob. Thank you again for uh, being so gracious to air this program. Ah, you know the world's got some great combinations. You got your peanut butter and jelly. You got your birds and your bees. You got your banjo and the fiddle. Now the world's got the ultimate combination. That's Open Arms Ministry on Live 365, where you're going to get a combination of some good old gospel music, some good old country music, and some good old-fashioned preaching and teaching like the world so desperately needs right now. You might even hear an episode or two of the End Time Prophecy News with W. Dean Shuck. And you can get all of this at MIOAM.org. That's MIOAM.org. O-A-M dot org. Just mash down on that listen live button and get all the country music and the gospel music and the old-fashioned teaching and preaching that you can handle 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, if you'll excuse me, i got to go figure out how my Uncle Jed does that shuffle. In the meantime, you can listen to Earl Scruggs finish up this here song. What is sin? The wickedness of mankind in the mind and body. The deliberate act of evil to the known will of God. It's the undying corruption within God's world and upon death follows a lost eternity. But there was a man, born as a human with the power of God who changed all things. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God.
he was in the beginning with God. He came as a child into the world and dwelt among us as our own. He was the light of the world. Sent to bring mankind out of darkness and lead them on the path of truth. To free each and every one of us from sin and the darkness within us since we were created. As a child, he taught in the temples with authority and power, and people were filled with hope. His teaching was love, and through his power, he received any who believed in him and made them children of God. For he was God's only Son, sent into the world that all might believe. He's the Savior of the world who made all things new and whosoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. Through love He gave His life and died for all mankind, taking all of our sins upon Himself so we could be free. Death couldn't overcome Him. He rose from the dead and ascended into the far reaches of heaven. There he waits in his Father's kingdom. His name is Jesus, the Savior of the world. He came to earth once. He will come again. Eyes have not seen, nor ears heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. He lives and his love lasts forever. He is the Son of God and all things were created for him. To the glory of the Father, who is with us always.